If you have your Bible, please open it to the book of Hebrews. We are continuing our study through this book. We'll be in chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. This is what God says to us. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither delighted nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Last week, we heard how the elements of the Old Testament, uh, the sacrificial system, were copies of heavenly realities. And now our author uses the word shadow to describe the Old Testament law. He's saying that the, the Old Testament law was a shadow of the good things to come instead of a, a true reality. A, a shadow is a weak representation of something that is real and true. It, it doesn't just give you the, the full or complete picture. So if you go outside, the sun is shining, and you see the shadow of yourself, it might look something like you, but it might be a little bit taller. Your head might look funny. You can't really identify someone by their shadow. Or kids, think about school. 
Think about elementary school if you're still there, or, or adults think back to elementary school. You walk into your classroom. You see an unfamiliar face sitting there at the teacher's desk. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> you got a substitute. You're going to watch a movie. You're probably going to play hangman. And if it was a last-minute substitute, then you're just going to do busy work. You're going to get a packet, and one of the pages in that packet might be a connect-the-dots worksheet. Remember those? There's all these dots with numbers on the page, and it's kind of this, this blurry mess. You don't really know what it's supposed to be, but as you draw the lines and connect the dots, as you fill in the picture, it becomes clear. Well, these shadows in the Old Testament are, are best understood when we see the reality of who they point to. And all those dots on the page, we, we can't fully understand them until we fill in the lines and connect the dots. Well, Jesus is who these shadows point to, and Jesus fills in the lines and connects the dots. This passage is the end of a pretty long discussion that the author has been having that he began back in chapter 7. Uh, and he has been through these chapters comparing Jesus and his work to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And, and the point that he has been making is all these elements in the Old Testament, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the priests and their work, the sacrifices and the blood, all of it points forward to Jesus and his work. And so the author concludes what he began in chapter 7 with our verses today to, to just drive home this point to us. That while the, the old covenant did not offer a solution for sin, Jesus offered a full, lasting, and complete solution for our sin through his death on the cross. We're going to look at three simple points today. His sacrifice is superior, his work is complete, and his spirit has come. Let's look at Point number one, his sacrifice is superior. Since the law and the sacrifices were only a shadow, they couldn't accomplish anything real and lasting. They are inferior compared to Christ. We're given four reasons why in verses one to four. God had commanded in the law that the people were to offer sacrifices for their sin. This was to be repeated year after year, and yet those sacrifices never perfected a sinner. It means that, that they, they never cleansed the conscious, conscience in any way that allowed someone to draw near to God. They didn't bring holiness. They didn't bring a way for people to come near to God. Second, nothing was accomplished in these sacrifices that, that dealt with sin, that actually removed any guilt. So third, the, the repetition of these sacrifices pointed to how they were not an ultimate solution. 
If they actually dealt with sin, they would have stopped. But instead of stopping, verse 3 tells us that they continued as a reminder of sin. As a bad reminder. Sometime last year, I decided that I was going to fix cracks in the ceiling in my girl's room. So I got all the stuff and, and, you know, spackled the cracks, put the tape on, painted it. It looked beautiful for a few weeks. And then I realized I used the wrong spackle. And so the cracks just appeared again. They're still there today. And every time I walk by, it's a bad reminder of what I did. These sacrifices, they were a bad reminder. They reminded the people year after year of their problem with sin. And fourth, as verse 4 tells us, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, showing us that these sacrifices were not God's ultimate plan to deal with our sin. And so these Shadows aren't meant to be an end in and of themselves, but to point us to something better, to point us to good things to come. In verses 5 through 8, the author quotes from Psalm 40 to show us God's plan all along was to send Christ to be the sacrifice for our sin, and these shadows were pointing forward to the work that he would do on the cross. Pick up with me in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This quote is from Psalm 40, and the original author was King David. He wrote this psalm, but our author in Hebrews quotes this as coming from the mouth of Jesus. Well, King David was a type of Christ or a shadow that pointed forward to God's coming king, King Jesus. Now, this statement that Jesus makes here that God doesn't desire sacrifices. How can Jesus say that God doesn't desire sacrifices when it was God who created the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priests and the tabernacle, and commanded that the people obey that law as a way to draw near to him. How can Jesus say in verse 6, in burnt offerings, God has taken no pleasure? We can answer these questions with some other questions. What pleases God? What does God desire most from us? Or what is God's will for your life? Jesus said the greatest commandment is that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what God desires most what God's will for your life is, is that you would, uh, you would love and obey him. That's what makes his heart 
glad. So what Jesus is saying here is that God is not pleased by going through the motions of a system. Just doing things doesn't make God happy. God is looking for hearts that truly worship and obey him. He's more interested in sincere obedience than animal sacrifice or any other thing we might do to earn our way toward him. Or another way to say it, God isn't a God we can just approach in a purely ceremonial way. A relationship with God is not about completing a list of things each week to stay on God's good side. So if if you're here today and you're you're just trying to figure out Christianity, you're, you're trying to understand, okay, what is this all about? How do I how do I know God? How do I have a relationship with Him? And as as you're thinking about it, and if to you it's just it's a list of things. Well, if I just come to church and, and read a few verses and maybe pray when we have dinner and, and nice to people and, and maybe give a little money, then I, I'm good. I'll, I'll be good with God. My, my list can be checked off. If that's what you think, uh, you're, you're missing the point of what Jesus came to do. You see, you can, you can never do enough good. Just like uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament, no amount of, of sacrifice would take away sin. Sacrifice and ceremony are not what God is looking for. He's looking for a heart that truly loves and obeys him. A few weeks ago in our uh, family Bible reading time, we were reading through the book of 1 Samuel. And in chapter 15, there's a story of a time when God sent King Saul and the nation of Israel out into battle. And God had instructed them as they went out to fight that they were to completely destroy all of the enemies and all of their animals, that they weren't to leave anyone or anything alive. And Saul and his men, they, they disobey God. And they take some of the animals, some of the best animals for themselves. And when Samuel the prophet hears about it, he confronts Saul. You you disobeyed God. And Saul's like, no big deal. I'll just sacrifice some of the animals that I took to, to make God happy. He wants to just go through the motions, to offer the sacrifice to uh, get God off his back. But his heart isn't in it. He's not sorry about disobeying God. He just wants to, to make the sacrifice and be done with it. And so listen to how Samuel responds to him in 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Saul thought he could just disobey and then offer a sacrifice to cover up his disobedience. Though God had established this sacrificial system, his desire was not for sacrifices and burnt offerings, but for a heart that would obey and follow him. 
Just as Saul was tempted to to disobey and then rely on a sacrifice to appease God, sometimes today we can we can act the same way. You think if I if I just kind of go through the motions, if I just check the box, just go to church, give a little, maybe share a Bible verse online. But God desires obedience, not sacrifice to cover disobedience. And so the sacrificial system, as we read earlier, it's not the solution. It, it actually highlights our problem of sin. And if God desires perfect obedience and no amount of sacrifice and no amount of good covers sin, then we have a problem. But in the words of Jesus in verses 5 and 7, we have the answer. We have good news. These verses show us how Jesus' superior sacrifice is the answer to our problem of sin. Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me. He's speaking of becoming a man, coming to live on the earth. God prepared a body that he would come and be born as a man like us. Jesus also says in verse 7 that he came to do God's will. An animal that's being sacrificed doesn't have a will. It isn't a, a willing sacrifice. It's a forced sacrifice. But Jesus came as a man. He came to live in that body that God prepared for him, to obey in that body that God prepared for him, and to die in that body that God prepared for him with one purpose, to do the will of the Father. Think about the, the life of Jesus. Think back to when, when he was a boy, and that time when uh, his parents traveled with him, and then he was separated from them, and they're frantic and worried and looking for him, and they find him in the temple, and they're kind of not sure what's going on. And Jesus says, I must be about my father's business. I must be obedient to my father. Or think near the end of Jesus' life as he's praying in the garden just before he's going to be crucified and he's, he's praying to the father that the father would remove this cup from him, that he would not have to suffer and die on the cross and yet he prays, not my will, but your will be done. Even when obeying the Father's will meant death on a cross, even when obeying the Father's will meant dying for things he never did, he never said, he never thought, Jesus was willing to die for your sin and mine. Jesus came to obey where we could not. And Jesus' obedience is the true sacrifice that God desires. And in verse 10, we see what that means for us. And by that will, 
by Jesus' obedience to the will of the Father, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once and for all. Through Jesus coming to the earth as a man and living obediently to the will of the Father and then offering himself on the cross for our sin, we have been sanctified. To be sanctified means to be set apart as holy or to be considered perfect, pure, sinless, without any hint of evil or wrong or wickedness. The sacrifices of the Old Testament could never make people perfect to come near to God. And that's a problem. If you flip over to Hebrews 12, 14, we read this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you aren't holy, if you aren't perfect, if you aren't pure, you won't see the Lord. You won't go to heaven. Holiness is the standard for entering heaven and seeing God. On your best day, maybe someone could say, you're good. Maybe they could say, you're, you're nice. You're kind. You're loving. But has anyone ever walked up to you and said, man, you're holy. You're pure, perfect. It's a standard beyond our grasp. But Jesus achieved this standard for us. His life supplied the holiness that God requires. In the same way that the Old Testament saints could never achieve this standard of holiness by any amount of sacrifice, we can't by any amount of work on our end. But Jesus has done away with this system of work, as verse 9 tells us, and he has made a new way to come to God through his perfect, obedient life and his sacrificial death. Jesus earned heaven by his obedience to God. And for us, through faith in him, through faith in what he has done, trusting in him through that, our sin is cleared away. It is forgiven, and we receive his perfect record of obedience. We have been sanctified. You have been sanctified. This is one of the good things that verse 1 talks about. Things that only come through Jesus. The Old Testament system never perfected those who draw near, but Jesus perfects those who draw near. So point number one, his sacrifice is superior. Point number two, his work is complete. In verses 11 through 14, we have a transition. Uh, instead of talking about Christ's obedience, uh, we now transition back to talking about his 
priestly work. This is a topic that the author of Hebrews has devoted a lot of time to over the past few chapters, comparing how Jesus' work as the great high priest was superior to every Old Testament priest. And now he wants to to put an exclamation mark at the end of that argument. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The Old Testament priests didn't sit. There was no chair in the temple for them since their work was unending. Day after day, week after week, year after year, animal after animal, they offered unending sacrifices. And those sacrifices, though offered in obedience, never had power to take away sin. And so we have this picture of the priests standing at their work, standing at unending work with with no rest and no stopping. But the priesthood of Jesus brings a final result, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. The work of the priest, it was unending. It was without rest. But Jesus offers one sacrifice, his life for our sin, and then he sat down because his work was done. We have this comparison, the priests who never sit, who never rest, who continually offer sacrifice to Jesus, who after offering one sacrifice, he sits down to show us that his work is complete and the Father accepts his sacrifice. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, if you're paying attention, we have a little bit of a problem. We read in verse 10 that we have been sanctified. And now we read that we are being sanctified. So which one is it? Have we been sanctified, verse 10, or are we being sanctified, verse 14? Well, it's both. We have been made holy through Christ. He has perfected us for all time. God can look at us and see that the work is completed because of the certainness of what Christ has done. He has sanctified us. But our experience of holiness now in this life is not yet fully complete. That's why verse 14 says we are being sanctified. We are growing in a process of becoming more holy. Wayne Grudem defines this process of sanctification this way. A progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. On the cross... Jesus broke the power of sin in our life. 
because of what he has done, our, our love for sin is lessened. When we trust in Jesus, we're given new desires, a new heart, new affections, and we begin to love and obey God and hate our sin. Through the power of what Jesus has done, through the work of the Spirit in our lives, we now have power to turn from sin, to overcome temptation. There is effective strength given to us to grow in holiness. We are being sanctified. And so our life should be a life where there is growth in holiness, growth in becoming more and more like Christ in ways that we should be able to see and in ways that others around us should be able to see. There should be a noticeable growth in holiness. This process of sanctification is kind of like a vacuum cleaner. You can push it around on a dirty floor all you want, but if it's not plugged in and turned on, it has no power to pick up dirt. When we trust in Christ, it's, it's like we're plugged in and the, the power is on. God helps us to deal with the dirt in our lives. But you still have to push the vacuum around to pick up the dirt. But it's not just your pushing. There is power supplied. This process starts when we come to faith in Christ. And there's two things that are important for us to think about. The first is this. This side of heaven, we won't be totally free from sin. We're going to have to fight against it. We're going to have to battle against it. But it also means that we're never defeated by sin in a way that we don't have power given to us to overcome it. And so we're never left with, I give up. We're, we're never left with, I just can't beat this. We're, we're never left with, this is just how I am and I'm not going to change. And so dad who comes home from work, a little grumpy, worn out, and you're greeted at the door by a frazzled wife, overexcited kids, a messy house, and you lose it. As you turn from your sin, and as you trust in Christ, there is power there. You're able to access his power to help you change and grow in patience and love. Or a student who's tempted to cheat on a test because you think you need good grades to get into that school. And though you've cheated before, now you, you fight against that temptation. You turn from that sin and you trust in Christ's power to change you. To be honest. To do your own work. This is the process of sanctification. You working to turn from the sin in your life and God being faithful through the power of the Spirit to work in you. 
And you may be thinking, that sounds good, but I don't see that in my life. Well, step back for just a moment. I think we often can be tempted to focus on the failures of the week. And we don't step back and see that there is growth happening in our lives. If you want to pick a good stock on the stock market, a good investment strategy is a stock that has slow growth over time. And so when you look at the, the chart of that stock, it's, it's slowly going up. Christian life is a lot like that. If you zoom in on maybe a particular week in your life, you might see some ups and downs. You might see more downs than ups. But if you step back and look at your life over a year, over five years, over 10 years, over 40 years of being a Christian, you will see steady growth in holiness. That is the process of sanctification, not perfect, but growing more and more like Christ. This work is a work in progress, but it is a work that is so sure and so certain that it is viewed as already accomplished because of what Christ has done. Jesus made this possible through his superior sacrifice and through his complete work. Our last point, point number three. His spirit has come. The Holy Spirit, we read, bears witness or confirms to our heart that this is true through two ways that we see in verses 16 and 17. These are quotes from Jeremiah chapter 3 where we read this prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. These days prophesied about, they have come. The Lord has made a new covenant with his people. The Holy Spirit now lives inside every true believer, writing God's law on their hearts and bringing new covenant power, helping us to grow in ways that please God. The Spirit is now at work in every true believer. He is the one bringing about this growth in sanctification. And the Holy Spirit confirms, secondly, that God will remember our sin no more. Verse 17, 
Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That can be kind of hard for us to believe. We're good at remembering when someone hurts us. You might remember how someone hurt you last week. You might remember how someone hurt you when you were little. But because of Jesus' complete payment for our sin, God can say that he remembers our sin no more. It's not that God can't recall our sin to mind, but that he chooses not to remember our sin. He doesn't let the knowledge of our sin impact how he relates to us. He can do this because Jesus settled the record. Jesus cleared away our guilt. We have been perfected, and there is no longer any record of our sin. The Spirit has come to confirm to our hearts that what Jesus has done is true and real. Verse 18 is the final word in this section of Hebrews that began back in chapter 7. And this final sentence, the author wants to just drive home his point. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you get this, if you believe this, it changes everything. This is what the author of Hebrews has been emphasizing point after point, chapter after chapter, section after section. This is the most important truth you need for your life because of Jesus, because of his superior sacrifice and his completed work, there is forgiveness. There is no longer any offering for sin. So the book of Hebrews is saying to you, do you believe this? Do you believe that you don't have to work, that you don't have to rely on sacrifice, that you don't have to, to check off a list? God sent his son to be the complete sacrifice for your sin. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Because of Jesus, good things have come. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of this book of Hebrews that chapter after chapter have been pointing to Christ, pointing to his superior work on the cross, his completed and finished work on the cross. Father, open our eyes to help us to see the reality of what Christ has done for us and that it would bring change. Father, grant saving faith to those here who need it and grant a strengthening from your spirit to those here who need it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.